Welcome everyone to Scale Lab, brought to you by TechLeap. I am Joe Wilson, your co-host, and if I were a three to five day business day, that is, package delivery, when the guy sitting next to me is kind of Constantine Overnight Express Vanaranya. Constantine, we're back. <laughs> I think that's this, your new this, nickname, Overnight I Express. Don't know. This, this, is, this intro is getting more and more complicated for me, but that's not my job. Uh, my job <laughs> is to introduce... Rob, because um, today we're talking to the uh, founder and CEO of SendCloud, a company that um, has, in the COVID period, been um, propelled into near unicorn status. And uh, but that was not maybe not that obvious. You uh, and so maybe my first question would actually maybe take us back to when COVID hit. Were you thinking, oh damn, my whole business is going to tank, or uh, wow, this is going to uh, be a, a super propellant of what we're doing? Yeah, thanks for uh, for inviting me uh, both. Um, we I remember in January seeing it in China kind of uh, starting to to spread, China locking down in some places. Um, we were already like, oh, this could be risky, could end up being in Europe. What kind of impact would this have on our business? We created uh, three possible scenarios. One of them was business as usual. Uh, one of them was, oh, all the postal delivery companies will stop, stop delivering, which in the end, our revenues will result to zero. So contingency planning and option C is physical shops might close, might lead to a boom in e-commerce, people staying inside, which will be the positive scenario. So the one, of course, you prepare for is the negative scenario. At least that's what we did. Yeah. So just before uh, before uh, the lockdown, three, four weeks, uh, raised an additional two million from our existing investors, uh, got a loan in from the Rabo Bank. Just like insurance in case it all goes yeah. to shit sort of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's, uh, that was pretty visionary. That would that would have been beginning before Carnival. Yes, yes, yeah. before okay. Carnival. And yeah. I remember in Carnival, I was in a tent. Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in a tent and there was like, uh, I was I was dressed up as Corona with the Corona beer. And like back then <laughs> nice. it was funny. Now back then it was funny. It's no longer funny. <laughs> and there were many of us. Um, yeah, so... Uh, that was something. There was drip. It was so hot and everybody's so tight. And it's like, that's where it started. Yeah, but I mean, this is, um, so So maybe just kind of how does it work in your company? That you saw this coming, it was an external threat. Not even the government was really prepared for this. And you had already raised uh, two million extra to have cash on, uh, you know, cash on hand for this uh, to extend your runway, basically. Yeah, yeah. So actually three and a half, right? So two million mm-hmm. equity, one and a half million uh, loan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we we just thought we always contingency plan, so there's always three or four scenarios, and we make sure we get through all three or four of them. One step back into the fundamentals, um, maybe ten seconds just for we had this feedback from our listeners. They said, "Hey, maybe just remind me exactly the people that are on there." So you and SendCloud, ten seconds, and then the question is going to be about product market fit. How did you know when you had it? Our uh, business is uh, the largest online shipping platform in Europe, so that means if you're running an online store. Um, a lot of the times we will process your orders, help you print labels, track your parcels, manage your returns. So that's what we do. We do that with 20,000 uh, merchants, as we call them. So online retailers today and some large marketplaces. On myself, 29, I, uh, I started this business when I was 20. Before that, run an online store when I was 18. Uh, I learned the ropes by doing and making uh, lots of mistakes, small ones, luckily, uh, some big ones. Um, I love sports. I'm quite ambitious. I'm competitive as well. 
And uh, yeah, that's it. And you wedge this business in between other things in a way, right? Like people think, oh, there's a consumer business, but you guys are sitting, pushed yourself right in between two big things. That's product, market, in a sense. How did you know when this was, this was going to work? Or it was naturally, other than COVID, you knew this was already working. Yeah, it worked already back in 2012 because we had an online store. So we know exactly what the problem was. So uh, we, we resolved our own, our own issues. So, um, and I think we resolved them with exactly the right priority, right? You, didn't, you don't start as a platform with, let's say, 100 different shipping companies and, uh, and 50 integrations into e-commerce, uh, e-commerce businesses of, of Magento or WooCommerce or Shopify. No, you start with resolving a small issue, connecting, in that case, our own online store through a platform to the Dutch Post. What, what was the major issue that you wanted to solve? We were, you, look, you, you, once you receive an order as an online store, you're like, okay, nice. So payment went automatic. I didn't need to do anything. We were students. So we, we were, I wouldn't say lazy, but uh, we didn't want to do manual work. So, and then you need to ship it. And then you open an old Windows program back then of the Dutch Post. It's not connected to online. So what does it mean? It means you copy paste every single order all the line items, right? So uh, name, address, you make mistakes. There is no checks on, on anything. Well, this data is just in the cloud here, right? So it's in your store. And it's like, okay, with one click, you should be able to send a request or something to the Dutch Post and get a shipping label back. Couldn't do that. Uh, it was really, really complex. And then we were also paying too much. It was not fair. So uh, small stores, they paid like uh, seven euros for a parcel. And the bigger ones, let's say uh, Bull.com pays two euros, 35 or it's two euros, an, 40. It's an injustice. Yeah. I find it's an injustice. Okay, that's the pain. Yeah, yeah that was frustration, okay. right? So I was like, yeah. Yeah, but they're doing the same thing, same same. So thing. you want to do cheap, more efficient, fully integrated yeah. Uh, solution. Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, that's how we started. So um, we negotiated a deal with the Dutch Post for cheap rates. So this was all for your company at the time, right? It's just no. It was. We knew this was going to be a business. Yeah, then? we knew already. We, 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 we there are lots of forums around, and uh, of course, you first Google to solve your own issue. So you don't think, oh, I'm going to start a new business. At least not. I'm not that visionary. So I was like, hey, let's Google and try to find a solution for our problem. Couldn't find it. Saw forums full of people complaining with the same stuff, and then of course, one plus one is kind of two. And I was like, oh, maybe this is a bigger business than selling phone accessories online, which was also nice. And what made it really take off? It didn't really take off. It did, it, it incrementally grew. Mm. So the first couple hundred customers we just called, told the story, said, we're three guys running an online store. You're running an online store. You use Magento. You use Dutch Post. We have this, you have this problem. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. You want to ship cheaper and through a more efficient platform? Total no-brainer. So that's how we kind of did it. Telesales on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Nice. call them. And of you're course, a sales guy, huh? No, I'm not actually. You're, but you're the you. Uh, I mean, you you come across as someone who's who's a good salesperson. You have a, you have a good story to tell. You're open. You're aggressive, ambitious. You smile a lot. I, you smile I, I, a lot. I, I, I learned I learned that I, oh, I okay. guess right. So I think I'm a naturally more of an introvert. So I'm like naturally more quiet. I kind of learned myself to speak, and and to sell. Mm. Um. What I do always think I can do well is I know the, the usually the product I sell really well. So, I, I, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. So you get that expertise feeling and then you feel like, ah, I'm confident enough to talk that through. And, and you understood the pain of your customer. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you, this is the, there's lots of people who come in and they're like, somebody builds a solution and it's looking for a problem. In a sense, usually like, there's a problem 
and we'll do it this way. That seems to be quite more efficient. Yeah, yeah, it is. And especially, look, we we were luckier. I always say that to people. We were we were 20. I was living with my parents. I had no risk. I wasn't, of course, I, I, I could pay my own uh, my own drinks when I uh, when I went out with my friends and that stuff. But for the rest, I had nothing uh, nothing to do. So I could focus my time fully on, on the business um, and not getting paid. We, we didn't pay ourselves for the first three years of the business. And we did hire people, actually, for that. Mm. So just because we wanted to grow. That's a good transition to how do you finance something like this? Yeah. Um, so what I understand, you 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 financed originally you financed business with the with your e-commerce business, right? So all the proceeds were put into the business. So um, and then when you started growing, I mean, you didn't pay yourself salaries. Uh, there must have come a point you thought, well, we need some external capital into the business. Can you take us through uh, your your process? Yeah. So started in 2012 October. Worked uh, worked on the business for a time. First year was profitable. I think that's the only year we've actually been profitable. <laughs> so uh, so that changed afterwards. Um, so then two and a half years later, we you know, of course started building a business. Had customers four five hundred, I guess, through the Netherlands. Uh, business was working well. We were scaling, and at one point we were like, hmm, let's. Uh, Let's try something else. Let's try to get additional capital in. And then we ran a CASA program called the Costara Bootcamp. We did that um, in 2014. Um, back then, we uh, venture capital, question mark, right? Never heard of it. Uh, we were just building a business. We, we weren't having a startup. Um, so that changed as well a lot uh, how we perceived ourselves. And then the first funding round came straight after that. It was 150K. We thought, oh, that's... Uh, real shitload of money <laughs> and uh, six months later we ran it's out it's everything we'll ever need yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was like I, we, I had a discussion with my CFO and co-founder Boss and Boss said nah Rob we don't need more cash and I said ah, we need more ca-. I'm always like that so we're gonna need more cash than that and it's like no no you don't you don't 150k we're gonna be fine six months later we ran out and then I raised another round and that's how you kind of got stuck on the on the IV of the investors right so um, and and so you had no no real long term investment strategy you you kind of stumbled into it so when you when you started taking investment kind of seriously and really yeah. looking for um for uh, the kind of investors that could take your business to to another level yeah straight after that right so after the first after now actually before we started raising the round we were like okay but then we need smart people who can really help us and uh we had of course we the first round was with two angels which we selected 42 different angels wanted to invest in our business uh, after startup bootcamp. Um, so we selected two, which we had the best personal connection with. That's really essential, I feel, with with investors. And who could add value. So we, we then always looked for, for a personal connection and, and potential value add in, in investors. And of course, then you do another round and another round and another round. And then you end up with with SoftBank and, and Ether El Ketston today, which is a bit, this was a larger round, right? 150 uh, million. 150 again. This is a magic it's, number. I don't know what it is, and it's still too little, of course. Yeah. Which is really weird. Yeah. It's, yeah. You realize you'll run out of that too. Eventually. Yeah, we don't need to, but if you want to be uh, the number one business in the world, right, in, in the shipping industry, um, that's basically like being the Stripe or the, the iGen of, of shipping, right? You're going to need more capital than that. But I only realized that like six months after the round. Which is interesting. Still the same. 
Yeah, you yeah. still have some shares to give away. I mean, yes. you're not, so you you haven't you haven't been cornered by your but your investment choices. So it's been it's no. been working out for you. Yes, even though um, look, it had worked had worked out really nicely for us. Even though I think we could have raised at higher valuations if we would have let go of the terms a bit more in the early stage. Okay. So um, we were always really focused, clean deal. Uh, no, one of our core values is no bullshit, no bullshit in the deal. So uh, no weird lick perhaps, no weird rights. So keep it as clean as possible. But a term sheet is, uh, uh, that, that has impacts your valuation, right? So if you have a higher lick pref, then the investor has less risk. So in that case, they can justify a higher valuation in some cases. But none of your investors is unhappy at the moment, I assume. No, 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 no. They're, all, they're all happy. but. I could have raised at a higher valuation, so I could have diluted less, right, for yeah. the entire business. So me and the co-founders, but also our. But employees. it gave you, I mean, it gave you also more freedom. I mean, you don't have all those those. I mean, it 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 might have made it much easier for the, to raise the big round because you did not have the leak, perhaps you didn't have yeah. all the kind of conditions or. But you can restructure if you grow fast, mm-hmm. and if you if you're if, if they're out of the leak, perhaps so uh, then it's all fine. You can restructure everything. Yeah. After each round, you can restructure. Which I also. This is like this is a, uh, a a broad word of advice. It sounds like you're trying to give to anybody listening. Yeah. After each round, you can restructure. Do you want to just spend thirty yeah. seconds on that? Because I'm sure they'd love to hear it. Yeah. So let's say you um, you gave away a, a, a board seat. You gave away a, a, a more let's say a, a lick pref, which is uh, something you a liquidation preference, which is something you uh, you want to get out. It's fine to work with a new investor to get these terms off the table. It works. So I've done it in the past a couple of times. So every deal we have done was cleaner. So, mm. um, so, so you looked you looked for a lead investor that had but had also the the muscle to of course. to make. And and how do you get your your existing um, investors to go along with the with, with the next round and and accept those uh, terms? Easy. I always maintain a good relationship with our investors. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a higher valuation. In some cases, they got some money back. I would say not not an issue, uh, not an issue there. So they they preferred the the growth and the valuation increase over the particular preferences that they had negotiated in the, in the deal. Yes, the downside eventually is no longer there, right? No. If the company is already twenty x more, so it was value, easier for so to give way up easy the to downside get, yeah. protection. So clean yeah. out yeah. all the t- all clean out all the terms. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, that, that went really well. Great. Well, um, maybe a step to what you use the money for. Um, I mean, you grow um, extremely fast. I assume that's about uh, hiring people. I mean, you already said that during COVID, you had to. You, it exploded. You had, were hiring so many people. Um, so, can you um, can you point at a few key hires in uh, as you grew your business that that really made an impact and 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 really from the perspective of our our listeners, you know, that are are facing these kind of problems. So. None of us is extremely technical as founders, so we don't have the the engineering whisk kit. Um, so we always did have some really good friends which were good with that with engineering. But I think one of the key hires was our CTO Tim, who's already there now for six or seven years, who really scaled our engineering team. Um, and actually, also think some uh, some of the really early senior engineers which we recruited back then. It was a it's still now really exp- now it's even more expensive. Back then it was really a, a, a buttload of money, um, but they're still here, and they still know everything, and that is that accelerates engineering product development massively because you have people that know the entire history can explain to 
what we call newbies, uh, um, how everything works. So I would say some key hires in the in the engineering and uh, early early senior engineers and our CTO are ones that really accelerated us. This is pretty interesting in that you. If I use general, you know, generics, you guys were the business guys in a sense, and you had ideas and CFOs and all that, but you, you came up with the idea, you put it into the market, but you didn't have the technology talent. But now you would far more be considered a, a tech company. Um, so how, that, that, that evolution is all due to your CTO and the senior hires? How, how does that, that movement, is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, we, I think we were a tech company from the start, right? We were building a platform, but we just, we weren't tech guys ourselves. So we were not engineers I could read some code, I build an online store, I can change some templates, I can edit small things. And I was the most technical one of the three of us. Ah. So, um, But yeah. really, I mean, some of the magic of what SunCloud does now is in the tech, it's in what it you is. build and how it, how it runs. So. Yeah, it's in the product. But at the moment that you saw the problem and that you started building the company, did you, so you've, the first stuff you were building, you were basically just, uh, you were sourcing from uh, from third parties, from uh, no. basically sticking it all no. together, or how do no. you do that? He's smiling. That that, yeah, good. I'm smiling. It's also a good story. So, of course, we were still studying. A good friend of mine back in the time uh, called Paul um, helped me out with the online store whenever I, I got stuck, right? And I told him, Paul, I have this idea, and I wrote a 15-page document on how I wanted the product to look like. I gave it to him, and he said to me, yeah, Rob, I never built something like that. I built websites. But damn, I'm going to try, right? So uh, three weeks later, our first product was live. And we paid him with an iMac screen and creative beer and 50 euros. Jeez, thank you, Paul. <laughs> thank you, Paul. Paul, Paul. Paul. Yeah, Paul was his lifesaver. <laughs> yeah, he, he did extremely well. Then, then six months later, he left to New York for uh, for an engineering job in uh, in the States. Yeah. Uh, so he, he left us. Uh, Is he doing well? Yeah, he's doing well. Good. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good Paul yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that, that, that helped us as well. And then uh, then I had another good friend of mine, also smart engineering, uh, was our first CTO. And the uh, smart mind, uh, really forward thinker, uh, architect. And how has this, this influenced your, your hiring strategy? Because now you have 450 people. 500, people, 500, 500 people. Yeah. 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 So, so um, how does it influence your, your hiring strategy? Hmm. Are you continuously hiring above, say, uh, um, above the level that you think uh, you want, or I mean, how do you how do you choose your people? Yeah, so there's a difference in in, in choosing senior management, I would say, and choosing uh, choosing uh, choosing people that are that 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 actually do the work. Um, <laughs> That's good for the senior management of SendCloud, In case you didn't pick that up, yeah. Yeah. the do the work people. Uh, they know I, I talk to them <laughs> about this uh, like that. So um, that the people that actually do the work, they uh, we're we're looking for hungry, eager to learn. Um, some cases a little bit of experience. Let's say you're looking for somebody in sales. You want them potentially to have sold something in the past, but you want them eager, uh, uh, willing, willing to learn, coachable, uh, motivated, self-starters, uh, curious. That's that's what we look for. So mainly characteristics and, uh, and how people are, and of course, then they also need to. Uh, we check cultural fit. So um, we have actually uh, these days, I think, uh, sixty different nationalities and uh, quite a diverse diverse group of people together, which is nice. Um, but we always do check the cultural fit with the rest of the team. So um, are people talking straight? Right? No bullshit for us is really important. Um, can these people grow? Uh, are they have, do they have a winner's mentality? Are they fun? Those are the three things we uh, we try to look for. 
What's the fun test? Yeah, the fun test. We we say, we ask really weird questions. And yeah, uh, let's see yeah, how they respond. Yeah, uh, Sabi, my my co-founder, the, the third one. The, the guy with the awesome hair. The, yeah, he, he, oh, that's also a good story. He shaved it. <laughs> he lost the bet against me. <laughs> so it was either I needed to grow my hair as long as Sabi, which would have taken 15 years, or uh, or maybe never. What an unfair bet. I mean, this is not right. No, yeah, not right. I just knew I was going to win. That's that's nice. So, uh, but he shaved it. Uh, and so. Yeah. So when you look at the, the the number of people now, you said 500. Yeah. How uh, how does that break down? Like, what's the what's the, how many are in tech? You know, how many are in other parts? That's it's quite a bit of people early stage for a SaaS company. So I'd love to know how it splits up. Yeah, if you look at tech and product, I think it's 120, 130 people uh, looking for. Uh, if we could double that tomorrow, I would. Yeah. So, um, but I think every uh, tech CEO will tell you. Um, sales are roughly 100. Um, why so many? Because we're in all different markets and we sell in native languages. Customer support also, I think, roughly 150-ish in marketing. Uh, then there's still uh, um, HR, uh, HR and recruiting, 2025, 20, which 10, not 12, are in recruiting. Yeah, if you want to recruit, I believe in building your own recruitment engine and not relying on uh, on outsourcing companies. Mm. And then finance, twenty twenty five, also quite a lot. And then, uh, and then, uh, there, that's yeah. kind of it. Right. I missed probably some people. Sorry. Yeah. So, but you said if you could, you'd hire, uh, you'd double your tech tomorrow if you yeah. could. It's just yeah. a hiring challenge in the market. Hiring challenge, um, but also you want the right kind of people. We we are really in tech. I think I'm looking for more uh, more experienced senior people, specialists, since we are now dealing with more specialist problems in an early stage of a tech company. You can hire broad generalists who know a bit about everything. And in some cases, now you need really experienced database administrators who know how to run a database at scale with millions of transactions and all that stuff. Um, so it's, um, yeah, we're looking for different kinds. Nice. And, and data scientists, I would assume as well, because yeah. you guys have so much, I mean, from a business model perspective, there's so much data flowing through your company. I, yeah. mean, you're, you're, I would almost call you a data company. Yeah, we, we don't know how to monetize that, Joe. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but if, I, if someone can figure it out. Yeah, if somebody can figure it out. But yes, there are, we we, uh, we do have a lot of data, so we know who orders what, what address, what speed, what's the fastest uh, shipping company, who is the highest quality. Um, yeah, we can make, yeah, if we don't want to do that, right? Because it's not like we, we can make consumer profiles if we would want to. We're not doing that. Um, so we have, a, a, a yeah, really a lot of data. So we can put out a request for anybody listening to this podcast uh, who has brilliant ideas how to monetize the data. You can call uh, Rob um, yes. at SendCloud. <laughs> .com is my email address. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> International. So you guys are working across how many countries now? Eight From eight countries in Europe, we ship globally. So uh, From eight countries, we ship globally. Tell yeah. us what that means. That means that we have online stores. We serve online stores in eight markets throughout Europe. So um, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, France, Austria, Spain, Italy, and the UK. Yeah, and they they um, send their products to a global customer. Yeah, yeah, worldwide, and we can return from worldwide destinations yeah. as well. But we don't serve merchants yet, let's say, from uh, the US or Canada. No. Yeah, and you, uh, you went into Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also learned from uh, experiences that were maybe not as as uh, as glorious. So, uh, and um, you went to Germany twice, I believe, or you kind of. So, can you take us through that uh, that uh, adventure? That sounds like a lesson. It's uh, 
Yeah, well, Rob tough. is still laughing. Yeah, yeah. Still laughing. <laughs> yeah of course. He's I, I laugh about this yeah. now, right? Yeah. So uh, I wasn't laughing then. But I think in 2015 we started. Uh, now in 2014 we first did Belgium, and we did Belgium. We are opportunists, so we did Belgium because the Belgian Post asked us, "It's like, Rob, I like what you're doing here in Netherlands. Please come do this in Belgium as well." And we're like, "Oh wow, that never happens." Um, Let's try and uh, and go there. So we did that. Belgium is a really successful market for us. Low effort, but extremely uh, extremely high return. Um, and then we thought, huh, Belgium's working out nicely. We can go to Germany. Do so tell me this is so it was opportunistic. Yes. I mean, yes. Yes. Okay. You're yeah. like it must be the same. Yeah. Now okay. I, I wouldn't say it must be the same. We were like, okay, yeah, but Germany's a different beast, and we learned a bit about the German culture and how Germany worked and how many failed companies there are in Germany. And we're like, we are different. Yes, um, that's where it usually goes wrong. Um, now, so we started there, uh, hired a country manager in Berlin. We uh, started recruiting a couple of people. Couldn't find any good people. We were also not paying that well back then. Um, so we started out there and after a couple of months, yeah, we kind of left them, you know? So we didn't really, I was there every uh, two to three weeks. We went over there for three, four days to try and teach them. They were in a co-working space, but we expected them to do a lot more by themselves than what we actually, uh, what they could, right? So the product wasn't ready to sell. They did close some customers, but then they churn, right? So they leave us. Um, so in the end, they were not the right people. They weren't being supported properly by the head office, but also our product wasn't ready. So we were still with our heads, mainly in the Netherlands and Belgium. So um, a combination of the things kind of made it fail. And then we're like, oh, put the brakes on, get everybody in our office, in our HQ, make sure that it becomes the highest priority for the company to be successful in Germany. And then, uh, yeah, we really started investing in, in product market fit, I would say. And it took us eight nine months to relaunch um, and then still it took a long long time to be successful so it was really a grind I would mm. say in Germany so uh, what I often hear especially I think Dutch investors are like that if you try for a year then it, if it doesn't work you cut and you run basically you go to something else but my experience is just keep grinding um, and then eventually if the market is there and if you have uh, the right product and if you learn enough, then you will succeed. Mm. It just takes more time in Germany than I would say in any other market. And what, what was your key lesson for kind of Germany specific, but also more generic as you went into other markets? The, the, the key lesson is that every market is different. That's a cliche, but it is. Yeah. So um, in our case, um, in Germany, there's a totally different dynamic with uh, shipping companies than in the Netherlands. Um, we couldn't get our pre-negotiated rates, uh, what used to be our big, uh, a easy way to start for smaller stores, right? You use our pre-negotiated rates, you ship cheaper and through a better platform. But in Germany, we couldn't get it with the market leader. So they said, we give nobody these rates. So then we had to charge for our platform, only our platform which was already a different proposition. Like a subscription or something? Yeah, 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 like a subscription. So you're running a different business model just to be in the market. Yeah, and that's eventually, we changed our entire business model of the entire company because of the lessons we learned in Germany. Um, so um, now every market is different. So in France, for example, in our business, 50% of all the parcels is not being delivered to people at home. It's being delivered to like the supermarket around the corner where people pick it up. Uh, that means if you cannot implement 
ja, service point selection, as we call it, in the checkouts of online stores, then the French will not use your tool. So that means an entire new product development. In Italy, 20% of the orders is still paid for in cash on the door. We didn't support that. We were like, yeah, this is ancient. Nobody does that. In Italy and Spain, they do. So then you need to support that before you can actually scale the business. So um, every market is different, different kind of cultures. Germany was also culturally really different. Uh, uh, data protection uh, was extremely, extremely important for Germans. So we ended up hosting everything in Frankfurt. So, uh, yeah. Mm. The entire service. Everything. You, you, you yeah. copy everything over. Yeah, why, why don't you go to markets that were more similar? Why, why don't you choose your markets uh, to kind of fit your model instead of uh, going to these different, like like Italy or for cash? I think that's a that's a could be a big hurdle, and you could have gone to uh, maybe to 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 another market that is more accessible, the UK yeah. or. Yeah, yeah. We always looked at the UK, kind of like, oh wow, these people are further ahead than uh, than actually us, so the market is more developed. So we're like, ah, we'll wait and continue developing our platform. We're going to be the best player on the continent and then go to the UK so that they can easily ship across and return across the continent as well. So we have a good USP. to, uh, to So we kind of parked the UK. And then um, Germany was the second largest e-commerce market. There was no competition, which I know why there was no competition, right? Back then there was no competition. Um, so we're like, oh, Blue Ocean, easy gains. We can uh, we can go in there claim the entire market if we scale up fast enough, um, and you only get to know the real dynamics if you're in that market, right? If you talk to the customers, and of course we talked to DHL and DPD and the UPSs of the world before we went into the market, but we always assumed uh, DHL will budge in the end, right? They will give us the rates we need. They're just being hard asses to us, and uh, they never did. They still don't do that. Uh. Yeah. Mm. But we are now successful in Germany, based solely on our product, I would say. And, and in terms of um, allocation of resources to a new market um, and, and, and also your leadership team, do you actually go there for, uh, do, you, do you relocate or how, how yeah. do you address it? Yeah, I re- uh, to, to restart it, right? Yes. So first we got everybody back in HQ and we rebooted everything, give everybody a crash course, send cloud, uh, how things work. And then I relocated with them for nine months to Munich. Mm. So build it from scratch. Uh, built a team, recruited people. So you lived in Munich for I nine months to get it going. To get it going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it didn't went, didn't go flawlessly, but in the end, those things make quite a high impact. Um, so if and also if you're not there, you don't know what the day to day looks like. You cannot reinforce the culture you had when you were starting out back in the Netherlands. It's like starting a new business, but then with more, with more money and a, I would say a more uh, refined customer base and a better product. Yeah, so um, you uh, every market is different. Yeah, um, you you uh, made it the priority of your of your company to go international. Yeah, uh, and you have a full leadership commitment going uh, going local um, to make sure that that you really get into the nitty gritty of that local market. Yeah, th- that's how we did Germany, and after we did Germany, we're like, hmm do we need to be local in every market? So then we decided to centralize all other markets in Eindhoven. Ah, so you didn't have to feel like you had to go move in again. Mm. Yeah, no. And and the people themselves are way closer to the product, the engineers, us, the entire CEO management team. So we centralized. After so you that. bring the local language into the Eindhoven office exactly. and run it from there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 
So if you have a, if you if you go into Italy, you bring a cohort of Italians into uh, to Eindhoven. Yeah, they are still here, so they're still in Eindhoven. Uh, still in Eindhoven, yes. Yeah. So um, we decided that hmm, what if we pay these people a lot more than what they would get paid? We don't have the cost of a separate office. We don't have the travel costs. We don't have the additional management costs and communication lag. So what, let's just pay them extremely well and make sure they're happy here and make them successful. Now, just logistically, did you recruit in Italy or did you recruit Italians in the Netherlands? Uh, in Italy. So you, you recruited moved. actively in Italy and, yeah. they, and you moved them into the... Yeah. Ah, good yeah. lesson. Yeah. Good lesson. And you think that's unique to being a SaaS company or you think other models could follow the same? No, I think you can you can always do that. Hmm. I think it's and, and, and now and, I mean, uh, and now if all remote working, would you reconsider? Just leave them mentally and uh Ah in, remote working, interesting topic. So uh no I wouldn't <laughs> reconsider, especially not for the first phase. That's um, a cultural thing? No. It's also about um being connected with engineers, being connected with the product people, being closer to the senior management. Um, unless they are really, I would say, more senior people used to working remotely, um, then then I would say it's possible. They are extremely well in communicating. And I'm a big fan of face-to-face interaction in an office still. I believe that the best creative ideas come when you're in a, in a room with everybody, with a coffee or maybe a beer or whatever. Um, unpopular opinion, I would say, these days. But uh, no. well, I don't know. I'd say it was no. quite a popular opinion for a long time. And then we went through this, you know, the pandemic. And then people sort of, I think it's quite trendy to say, oh, we want to be a part. But I think the question is, is it that way because that's your belief system? Or is it that way because it's a truth? I, I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, we follow our belief systems, right? And yeah. you well, like it that way? It, as long as it's deliberate. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a not, conscious yeah, choice. Yeah, conscious choice, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm just saying we do have remote people, right? So. Yeah. Uh, but they usually are connected in a certain way to the office. So they once every so often, every maybe a week a month, or maybe two weeks every three months, they come by. I find that the the most successful remote companies are often the outside of say remote.com are quite mm-hmm. often the in the maturity of the company itself to manage that is part of the equation. You mentioned that you had um, this sort of, you started to use the subscription in Germany because you kind of were forced to in order to have a business. I don't know if I would call that a pivot, but it's more like a, an evolution. Were there any other big pivots like that along, along the way? I think that's that's actually the biggest. Yeah. So um, changing our entire business model, um, just keep in mind we were doing only the, the pre-negotiated rates. So where we negotiate deals with, let's say, uh, UPS, for we tell them we do a million parcels a year or 10 million, we get a discount from those people. So instead of paying, let's say what I earlier said, right, seven euros for a shipment, we would pay 350 or four. And we would then give that to online stores for five, right? So this so, was the ammunition for your sellers. Yeah, super nice. Um, and eventually when we changed the model, we opened it up everywhere, right? So that everybody could bring their own negotiator rates, in, but then pay us a small monthly fee for the use of our software. So it could have disrupted our, our, our existing business, back then already quite sizable, massively. Because what if everybody started bringing in their own negotiated rates, we will be... I'll be hammered financially. Mm-hmm. So, but now bottom line, what makes it really strong is the combination of both. So it doesn't matter what you do. You always ship, I would say, with the cheapest or best carrier. Either you use ours, our rates, or your own. Um, so we, uh, yeah, I think that was a really good evolution. 
But this is a, this is, I'm going to pause because this is really interestingly important because there's a value shift that occurred from your original concept, which was, ah, uh, we'll be big and we'll get the rates and everybody will get, we'll, you know, we, you were thinking the pricing was going to be the deal. And then the shift over to subscription says, oh, actually, we shifted the value over onto the platform. Yeah. Is that accurate? The way That's that completely accurate. So I still remember that uh, back in the time, I think 2013, 2014, Hank, the VC, Hank, uh, Jan, and, uh, and also back then Kuhn, they told us, Rob, you need to be a SaaS business. And we didn't pivot it back then. I was like, what are you guys talking about? No way. This is a way more profitable model where we're currently on. But eventually they were right. Uh, so we pivoted uh, and it, uh, yeah, it was it was a really good yeah, a good decision I would say, which uh, yeah. So okay, companies can survive pivots. Did, was like it that. was it driven by the numbers? I mean, uh, or uh, I mean, how does how do how does your your kind of thought process work? Um, so there must have been some signals coming out of Germany, or uh, so. What drives a decision at your company that's that kind of that fundamental? So we do research, okay, and we we kind of know where our product is in the in the market and how good it is. So we were always on the side of nah, our product's not yet good enough to separately ask ask uh, let's say hundred euros a month for it. Nobody will pay that, which is also usually we're opportunist and optimistic. We were not. Um, and that kind of changed when we built more features. So added more features, um, built a better product, m- integrated more different services, went international. Um, so uh, so that was the, that was the change. So our thought process goes like this. So we talk to clients, we listen to them at a large scale, we ask the right questions, so we go deep. And then we try to distill from that, okay, so what do they want and what is the actual need in, in the market? And then we communicate correctly to engineers to build that together with the product team. Yeah, like that, that's what, what how but it you, went. But before you talked to your customers too, and you didn't come to that conclusion. So something must have happened in Germany that made you think, well, hey, this is actually a very bright um, idea and, and let's yeah. pivot. And you have the, the data to, to back that up, I guess. Yeah, no, we, we experimented then. So mm, it's like, okay. we just told the German sales, you know what you're going to do? Ask our customers, do, are you willing to pay a monthly fee to use the software? Commit, let make them commit, even though we systematically cannot invoice anything like that at all, right? Didn't work, but we just make them commit. And uh, if they, and then, and, and then start working, right? So for us, that's enough proof points. And okay, work will work at scale as well. So um, it's a combination, of course, of research and feeling with the market, uh, talking to customers, but then just doing it, right? So executing uh, on, on the feeling. Did this tie to capital in a way? Like if you, if you look at your capital history, we talked about it already, but you were like this size round, this size round, this round, and then boom, the big round. Was this somewhere in that, was it the pivot that helped tell this bigger story? Yes. I think back in 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, uh, VCs, I don't want to insult anybody here, but they follow the herd in general, right? So, and the whole herd was looking at subscription revenues. Subscription and revenues are the holy grail to building uh, building a scalable business. Um, back then, we were really still transactional driven, right? So every transaction for us was business. And, and they were telling us, Rob, that's not recurring revenue. I'm telling them with cohorts and with all kinds of data, it is, and it's more recurring than a subscription revenue because it's, it grows, right? That like a, it was growing with 10, 15, 20% per year instead of declining what you usually have with subscriptions. Um, 
but they were they were like yeah but it's not subscription it's out of the box it's not something standard so by building out a subscription model which was also good for our clients back then we we eventually got to like uh, 700 800 900k for monthly recurring revenues with that next to our big uh, pre-negotiated rates and they uh and then it's like, oh, wow, super interesting. So people are willing to pay for your software. Oh, now you're a real software subscription business. And multiple goes, the, the revenue multiple, which they value us on, goes times two. Because we fit <laughs> kind like of in the box. Towards, you actually did something that investors understood, and then they started to pay for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, but but not on purpose per se you sort of got there through the Germany requirements and then or was it like you you, you I'm trying to but for you're the happy listeners, yeah. 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 yeah I mean for the listeners how forward thinking was it or was it like oh we stumbled on this problem in Germany and then suddenly realized we have a better business no we knew kind of that eventually people would be willing to pay for the software right so yeah. we never knew what the timing would be like ah, you were or building when. towards that okay so we were building always the best product in the market where people will pay for so um but what we our initial thoughts were we're going exactly the same as Ajen or Molly or Stripe. So that means uh, money per transaction, no monthly fees. Uh, the person who does the highest amount of volumes gets the best discounts of Ostercard or Visa or whatever. And in our case, it's UPS or DHL. Um, so in that case, then we... Uh, yeah, we would be able to get the highest discount, then we would be able to serve larger customers, get more discount, and again, serve larger customers, flywheel. Yep, um, sounds, sounds good. Sounds completely yep. legit. So that's how it went in my head. But then eventually, like, hmm, the MasterCards of our world, right? So the UPS is the DHL. They, it's not a product which is digital, right? A transaction, completely digital, doesn't cost a thing, actually. Yeah, maybe a bit of risk, but... Definitely not a 2% or something, uh, they ask for it. In our case, a physical product needs to be picked up somewhere across the Netherlands and it needs to be dropped off through sorting centers and it gets lost and all kinds of other stuff. So actual physical stuff needs to happen. And what we realized after some time is that we, why, why we cannot get to the same rates that, for example, Amazon has is because we have thousands of different pickup points where, where actual trucks need to go to to pick stuff up so the logistic logistical advantages of one large sorting center with 10 trucks we didn't have those for the for the shipping company so eventually we'll be kept on our rate so that's uh that's another thing we learned by yeah, yeah, yeah. our assumptions were proven wrong uh, uh by them by the market eventually by the shipping companies yeah. And and you have to tell us um, about how you landed your big you know, uh, SoftBank uh, investment because SoftBank is a completely different kind of player than than the other investors that you had on your cap table, um, and and they're looking for AI, they're looking for pre-IPO, you know, they have a number of, of of criteria, and and so how how do you get on their radar screen and how did it work and and what can you advise others? Yeah, in this sense. They're looking for, uh, SoftBank looks for all stages, right? So they're kind of agnostic. They're looking for big companies with large ambitions. Oh, yeah, because outside. it was SoftBank, not the Vision Fund. It is the Vision Fund. Oh, it is the Vision Fund. It okay. is the Vision yeah. Fund, but SoftBank, Vision Fund, and also uh, Al Kerteton was in the round, and Al Kerteton is more consumer-focused. So they have lots of investment in e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So both of them, they uh, they did the round. Um, yeah, I think we, when we started raising was April 2021. I was already telling our CFO, it's like, ah, they're knocking on my door. We have great numbers. If we want to raise now, we should. And 
and bosses are usually more a bit conservative, but smarter than I am. And he's like, yeah, no, we don't need the money. We still have 10 million in our bank account. We're burning 200K a month or something. So uh, we don't need anything was the actual truth. But I'm like, yeah, but there is an opportunity now to raise a large round. So when I do it, so we, we started that round. Um, we started that round. So I was talking to already over 40 investors, right? I maintain relationships with them every once in so often. I have a call, how's it going? Um, and sometimes I get introductions from that, right? So to, to companies which are in their portfolio, which are then close as clients or as partners. So I usually connect with investors over a longer term. Um, SoftBank was one of them as well. So we, uh, we connected with them before. Um, reconnected in the process. And uh, back then we had like nine different term sheets and uh, and we could choose. Meaning mm. competing term sheets. Competing, yeah. mm. which was insane for us. We were usually happy once we got one and then mm. two was, was luxury. <laughs> yeah, so that Was um, it just the business numbers or was it also, do you also think it was something you did in terms of investor relations that... It's a combination. It's always a combination of factors, but we had really great numbers, uh, 120% growth after us for, for that year. Uh, our, our subscription business was doing even better, right? It's growing even faster. Um, all markets were growing fast. Um, team was, was good. Relationship were good with the investor. So all, all signs were green, I would say. Uh, and that just helps. If all signs are green and you fit in the box, yep. then, it's, uh, then, it's, then it's... But inside of that, is the you didn't need the money? Yeah, and it's always better to raise when you don't need. Yeah, and you had you had basically your indicators were saying we're on our way, we still have money, and you guys made the decision we're going to raise now. We're not going to wait till we need it. Yes, yes. Even though uh, the, the 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 counter to not to raising right was uh, to not raising was if we wait longer we will get a higher valuation yeah. right mm-hmm. because we have still more cash in the bank and eventually then we will dilute less. Um, uh, I disagree with that because I thought we had a really great year, massive growth. And I thought, yeah, we might do a really good year in uh, after that, but it's not going to be 120% on top of 120%. Just not going to happen. It's also if the valuation was mathematically connected only to like your revenue or something, right? Which ultimately when you're in the stage that you're in, that's not the case. You're negotiating in a different way, not just the multiple of revenue approach. Yes, I assume. Yeah, yeah, but but everybody still looks at the multiple of revenues, right? So eventually, when it comes down to it, they look. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they they still look at that. But SoftBank, I think we had a really good click, and also El Cateton could help us signing some really major brands. Sure. So um, for us, it's also important to get. We're 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 looking to sign larger deals. So that's uh, that's where we started moving into. So we need them as well to help us a bit with uh, the Louis Vuittons of the world to get them. So uh, that's the evolution is you now need to go enterprise. Yeah, larger brands and eventually then uh, then global, right? So we want to really move into the States and uh, and grow there. All right, so we move into the uh, rapid fire part of our interview, which means quick questions, quick answers. Ready? Um, what's one lesson your job has taught you think that you think everyone should learn at some point? Just uh, just go and execute, right? If you have a plan in your head, why not try it out? You have nothing to lose. All right. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would it be about? <laughs> yeah, there's actually something totally different. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in, I don't know why, but in, in war already when I was younger, right? So I would write potentially a kind of book on uh, on World War Three. Not, not that it really happened, but I mean like a, like fiction? a story or, fiction around uh, World War Three and how it would play out. All right. If you could start another business tomorrow, different than what you're doing now, what would that be? 
uh, that's a really tough one. Maybe an uh, international uh, HR platform that manages payrolling as well across the globe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's a brilliant idea. A brilliant idea. Good thing no one's doing that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean on your own payroll, right? So yeah. managing that as well. So I don't mean uh, uh, the great people at remote. <laughs> you mean something? Okay. Yeah. Any productivity hacks for other CEOs, things that make you more effective? Yeah, so I always resisted getting an executive assistant because I thought it was kind of, it's not Dutch to get one, I think. Uh, but it helps a lot, right? Scheduling, making the most of my time. So if you're at scale, eventually uh, uh, get somebody like that. It helps enormously. If you could have coffee with anybody in the world and get advice, I think, living or dead, yeah, what would it be? Yeah, I, I've thought about this. Um, Bill Gates, I would say. Bill Gates? Yeah, because I really... He was really competitive and quite nasty, I would say, when he was building his business. But I think he totally turned it around and became, uh, yeah, really, uh, I think, really great for the world. Um, I really like what they're doing with the foundation. Uh, I think he's super rational. He reads a lot. I do the same. Um, he, he, I, I like the way he thinks. Yeah. All right. And then the final one is, um, this is your platform. You've got future and current CEOs listening. Any any final words of advice for all those entrepreneurs out there that are tuned in today? Yeah. Make sure you have fun while uh, while building the company. Lots of people forget that. I uh, I still have a lot of fun every day. Also, I'm my co-founders as well with, uh, with the team. And I think that's super important. I believe it. Just listening and talking to them. Yeah. What do you enjoy most? What's your, what's the, where do you get the biggest kick? It is, it's still with, I think the biggest kick, we, we went with the entire company to Ibiza because we had amazing, amazing 2020. I put it for a goal. And once I, I was there and I, we were having a drink at the, at the hotel and uh, there was like 350 people and I was with, with Boss and with Sabi, my co-founders, and we were like, what the, what, the, what the hell is this, right? This is super cool. And they were all nice people. Um, yeah, that gave me, I think that's one of the, the coolest things. You came back from Ibiza. Yeah, <laughs> I survived. I survived. Made your way back. Yeah, yeah nice. I survived. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Um, Thanks. Thanks. Great talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Scale Lab, a podcast brought to you by TechLeap. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please share it on your network via social media and give us your feedback. See you on the next episode.